Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Let's talk food prices here now. A lot of listeners obviously got their big Thanksgiving dinner on the weekend. This may have been the most expensive Thanksgiving dinner we've seen. Food prices so high in the grocery stores right now. Got Tyler McCann standing by to discuss. First, let's have a little listen here to the federal industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne. He says, look, don't worry, help is on the way. Prices are going to start coming down. He told these grocery store CEOs, you better bring your prices down. Here's what he had to say the other day. I have secured initial commitments uh, from the top five grocers to take concrete actions uh, to stabilize food prices in Canada. Starting soon, Canadians will be able to see rollout of actions such as discount across a basket of food products, uh, price freezes, and price matching campaigns, to name a few. Okay, so he says the prices are going to start coming down. Let's discuss it with my guest, Tyler McCann. Tyler is Managing Director of Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Tyler, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. So when we take a look at grocery store prices here, what can you say about the price surge that we've seen? I mean, it's no joke, right? Prices have gone up a lot. Yeah, prices have gone up a lot. Prices have been going up over the last two years at, at rates that we're not used to seeing in Canada. But there's a, a couple of things to keep in, in mind. One, Canadians already pay pretty affordable rates of food. So yes, food is more expensive. But if you look at the cost of a lot of foods in Canada compared to a lot of foods in the rest of the world, Canadians do fairly well. Our food inflation actually has been raising faster than what we're used to, but it's also raising rising slower than what we're seeing around the world. And those pressures that are driving food inflation higher, that it's a complex set of pressures that are impacting the grocery store, are already starting to ease. So even before Minister Champagne was announcing that these actions were going to stabilize food prices, we were seeing food prices start to stabilize. What kind of reaction have you heard from the people that you speak to in, in the aftermath of this threat from the government? Like we saw the grocery store CEOs summoned to Ottawa, they sort of read the riot act, called on the carpet and told, look, you better bring your prices down or, or we're going to do something. We're going to tax you. Maybe we'll bring in a punitive tax on your profits. What do you think of that strategy? Does that work? Well, so I think it, it depends on what you mean if it, if it works, I think it probably works for the politics of it. Yeah. But for actually, for actually uh, tackling the the food affordability issue, it's probably not going to make a huge difference. I think one of the reactions from the food industry has been a bit of a sense of frustration. The food industry has been dealing with these pressures for years now. This is not new. Our input costs shot up uh, following the Russian invasion. We're still dealing with that on on vegetable oils that are used as a big ingredient, wheat, uh, uh, bakery products are one of the, the prices that uh, 
products that have seen their prices go up the most. We're, we know that, that labor prices have gone up. Lab, labor availability has been a challenge. So we've, yeah. we've had all of these pressures that people have been dealing with for years. The government's finally realized that it's an issue and is coming to the table, which is is good. But I think that there's a lot of frustration that they're they're coming back late and then really just focusing on on the the grocery sector in particular. Let's uh, speaking of the grocery sector. Are they making windfall profits right now? I mean, I took a look at a report out from the Competition Bureau that calculated the profit margin at I don't look like a fairly modest profit margin overall. Like how what how much profit are grocery stores making right now? Yeah, it, it, and it, it's always one of the things that the Competition Bureau report found was that there is a shortage of transparency. I think that there's pretty broad agreement that we actually don't have a really good idea of how much these stores are making off of the grocery part of the business. Again, Loblaws is a, is a big chain, so you're looking at at pharmacies and you're and you're looking at financial services. But I think you know you're looking at um, a fairly tight margin. Grocery is a low margin business. Even though we're a fairly concentrated sector, significantly more concentrated than the United States, it's still a very cost-competitive marketplace. And and the Competition Bureau report itself says that one of the reasons we're not seeing foreign retailers coming into Canada is because they don't think they can compete on price. And so, um, by and large, margins are are probably staying the same, but when all of those costs along the food chain get passed along, so something that used to cost $20 now costs 22 Even if you're only making a 10% margin, just for easy math, you were making $2 in profits before. Now you're making $2.20, so you've got $0.20 cents extra profit, but your profit margin has stayed the same. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing is that those costs are piling up along the food system, and retailers are dealing with them. Consumers are, are, are on the front lines of that. But but it's not amounting to windfall profits or profiteering or uh, this you know greedflation that people like to talk about. Speaking of Tyler McCann, Agri Food Policy Institute, talking about food prices in Canada. Uh, how about the carbon tax? We, we hear a lot about this. Speaking of politics, we hear a lot about what does the carbon tax drive up food prices. Let me play a clip here for you from the the leader of the opposition here, Pierre Polyev federal conservative leader talking on this point, then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. The federal Trudeau carbon tax raises the cost of energy, the energy that it takes for the farmer to to produce the food and for the trucker to ship the food. And that adds to the cost for everyone who buys the food. Does he have a point? Does the carbon tax drive up food prices? He has part of a point. The carbon tax is, is certainly contributing to that pressure. But a couple of really important things to keep in mind. The vast majority of on-farm fuel that farmers used is already exempt from the carbon tax. There's a bill before Parliament today that will exempt the rest of the on-farm fuel use that's there. So yes, it's true that the truckers that are moving food from the farms to the processors to the retailers are paying the carbon tax, but the farms themselves are large, largely exempt. And And... It is one piece, again, of a, a complicated puzzle, but one, one of the things that I think we're really missing in this debate is, is some better evidence that tells us exactly how much it's having an impact. But, but I think, Mike, there's a, we, we've made a decision with the GST, by and large, to exempt food from the GST. Right. They could have made that decision with the carbon tax, and, and they didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Let's listen to another clip here of the federal industry minister here speaking the other day about food prices. He says, look, these grocery store CEOs got the message and you're going to start seeing some lower prices. Now, he says he's been checking this out himself. Let's listen here. I've been looking at some flyers this morning and you already see action uh, in terms of different grocers adjusting ahead, obviously, of Thanksgiving. Okay, so he says he's been scouring the flyers, and he says he says uh, he sees some deals out there. We heard him say earlier there whether there's going to be more price matching, price freezes, special prices. I mean, doesn't that happen all the time in this sector? I mean, isn't aren't grocery stores always doing price matching and specials and coupons? What's that? Wait, what's yes. different now? Yes, they do, is the short answer. And what's different is we're not really sure yet. So because they don't want to encourage collusion, they don't want everybody coming up with the same plans, we actually haven't been able to see the specific plans that the retailers have given the minister. But we do know that, again, it's a pretty competitive marketplace. If people look at their flyers, many chains already had price matching policies in place. That's nothing new. This tends to be a time of year where we do go in and we see price freezes in place. Grocery stores all have their loss leaders. These are these products that end up being deeply discounted to draw people into the store. So these are all policies, approaches, tools that retailers are using to to attract customers into their stores. We we knew that right. that was happening. So it's not clear what's different now. And 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 again, it's it's interesting. The day after the prime minister um, announced that, or the day the prime minister announced they were going to call them in, there were yeah. stories in the in the Globe saying that that. Prices were starting to slow down. The day after the retailers were in Ottawa, uh, stats can confirm that inflation was the climbing at the slowest rate it had since February 2021. So, you know, these things were already happening before the government decided to take action. Tyler, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Let's talk about one of the hot items flying off the shelves at Costco right now. And I'm not talking about the giant packages of crackers or even the $1.50 hot dogs. I am talking about gold bars. Costco now selling one ounce gold bars. These are so popular that they had to put a limit on how many of these that their customers could buy. You can only buy two gold bars once at each time, and you can only do that once a week. <laughs> they can't keep these gold bars in stock. Taking a look at the Costco Canadian website right now, the one-ounce gold bar currently selling for $2,679.99. This is proving to be a very, very popular item. Does this sound like a good investment to you should you go to costco and pick up a couple of gold bars got will huggins standing by to discuss first let's have a listen to this report here now this is from the daily wire 
Costco has a new product that they are selling out of, and that is gold bars. I love this story. I can't believe this exists. Costco has everything. They've got everything, and now they have bars of gold that they are selling out of. Part of the reason they're selling out is because, you know this, if you're a Costco aficionado as I am, if you get the slightly more expensive Costco card, then you get 2% back, and apparently you get 2% back on gold as well, so you're, you're getting an effective 2% discount on every ounce of gold you buy, which is pretty great. But also... What this tells us is people don't have confidence in the stock market. All right. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Will Huggins. Will is a finance and economics professor, McMaster University, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Will, thank you for coming on today. All right. I'm happy to help out, Mike. Okay. I appreciate it a lot. So, okay. So gold bars at Costco. Boy, this is getting a lot of attention. What do you think of this? Um... It's not nearly as special as a lot of people think it is. Uh, I think what's unusual about it is the venue. Yeah. Like the the idea that we're retailing gold to people out of a, you know, basically a big box wholesaler is kind of unusual. I, yeah. I think that's probably the most interesting part of the story is the the gold bugs have found a really, really clever vector to sell gold to the public. And that's through Costco. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good marketing move by Costco, right? It's got everyone talking about Costco. Absolutely. And one of the yeah. things they've been doing is intentionally limiting the supply so that they would be able to tell everybody that they're selling out, that it's going crazy. And that just drives up demand. Yeah. Okay. So taking a look at this, so 2000, well, close to 2,700 bucks for a one ounce bar of gold from Costco. I mean, you can, yeah. can't I just go down to the bank and buy a, buy some gold coins or a gold bar? Like if yeah. I walk into a bank branch, will they, will they sell me the same thing? hundred percent. Yeah. In fact, it's probably even set up at the same Swiss refinery. Yeah, and, you know, I was reading that you, Walmart, I get, apparently some Walmart stores can sell you a gold bar as well. So I'm just wondering what the, the difference here is, like you said, it's kind of a very sort of clever retailing, I guess, to sell these gold bars. But apparently people are loving it. What do you make of this, oh, yeah. this idea that the, the, the demand is certainly there? Um, the demand usually shows up for gold whenever there is some sort of economic uncertainty. Uh, there's been a long-standing narrative that has been inherited by people unquestioned for decades that gold shields us against economic disruptions. Um, yeah. And that, that's got, how do I say, um, marginal evidence behind it. They usually like to quote about, you know, Nixon going off the gold standard and the price suddenly rising. But the same gold bugs conveniently forget when gold prices crash to like 300 bucks an ounce. Yeah. So it's a, it's a highly volatile asset at the end of the day. It's very speculative. It doesn't generate any yield. Um, there are security risks to obviously having it in your house because like if you had a, a bond or a stock certificate, not that we have these things, but like it's hard to steal that from someone's house and resell it. But you can like steal gold bar or gold jewelry pretty easily, right? Like you need to insure that sort of thing. Uh, so th there's an expense to keeping that sort of thing around under your mattress effectively. Yeah, sure. I mean, you need some insurance in case your gold gets stolen from your house if you're keeping it in your attic or under your mattress or something. What about uh, you, maybe you could buy a safe or rent a safety deposit box down at the bank? That's right. That's right. But at that point, you're paying somebody to do your custody services for you. And if you're going to do that, we actually we already cut out the middleman in that business oh, well over a decade ago. There's a number of online uh, custodians who you can buy gold from and it's stored in their vaults and they will convert it back to cash for you. 
without the need for your own security concerns at home, without having to get a separate safety deposit box with your bank that they charge you for to you know, put your yellow rock in. Um, so it, it's already designed to handle the custody problem. Uh, and we've had those for some time. So I, honestly, if someone is buying gold as an investment, um, holding physical gold, it, it's a real challenge. Uh, how are you going to sell it is not a thing people have really thought about. Well, that's a because good point take, because, okay, let's say I go down to Costco today and I, and I buy myself a gold bar and then I decide I want to sell my gold well, bar. Can yeah, I bring it back? I can't bring it back bucks. to Costco. They're not going to buy it back from me, right? That's right. You know, so something goes wrong with your car and all of a sudden you need that 2,500 bucks. Costco is not buying it from you. Right. So who, where do I go? Where do I go to sell it? Can I can I go into a bank with a gold bar and plunk it down for the teller and say, can I have my twenty seven hundred dollars of this gold bar here? Generally not. Yeah. I'm not saying that banks do not have repurchase facilities for that, but you can't just walk into your branch and be like, here's a gold bar. It's certified and expect the teller to be able to hand you twenty seven hundred dollars worth of cash same day. Yeah. So right, I guess like I'd have, have to, to say these sorts of assets and stuff. You have to send it to a place where they test the gold and they make sure that it isn't just a lump of copper stamped up the same way a gold bar is. Yeah, there are lots of um, storefront places like, you know, I can go down to Gary's Gold Mart or whatever. And, That's and, right. And I'm sure he would yeah, buy, he'd buy my buy gold it. bar. Yeah. Yeah, jewelers will buy it, but you're generally going to take a pretty big loss because the jeweler is then going to plan to either use it or resell that gold themselves, probably at the market rate. So first yeah. off, you're going to take a loss on it in that way. And you also have to consider that, you know, converting anything into cash or cash into anything usually has a bit of a spread, right? There's, there's a bit of a cost to it. So there's a process loss to investing in gold. It's usually two to 3% round trip. Yeah. Right. There's like a brokerage free fee, right? When you buy right. the gold and then when you sell it again too? That's right. Okay. So that cuts into any kind of profit you might, you might want to realize. Now, what about, you know, you often hear, well, it's a good idea maybe to buy some of these gold bars just in case. I mean, maybe it would be a hedge against inflation. Inflation right now is running quite, quite high. Does that make yep. sense? Is gold a hedge against inflation? It's not a very good hedge against inflation. Uh, we've been, you know, you can run the the correlation on this. You can check the statistics on it. It's uh, we've had inflation going for a little while now, last couple of years, and gold prices the same as it was three years ago. Okay. So it hasn't moved anything. Now most people would then say, well, if you go back five years, it's up fifty percent. And to them, I'm I say yes. And if I cherry pick a piece of data where gold price is falling, say on its way to three hundred bucks, um, it also looks like a bad investment. So you got to be cautious about sort of what data you use to determine if gold's a good investment. Um, from a theory point of view, without doing any math, gold and other precious metals are not a bad investment. Uh, in the sense that their returns are not perfectly correlated with the stock market or real estate or the bond market or other things that people traditionally put their wealth into. So sometimes, you know, you'll see a stock market crash and gold might not fall. Uh, so in that sense, it, it can help protect you against disruptions in, say, a property market or some other asset that you might otherwise invest in. But gold itself can crash. And I think that's yeah. the missing part of most people's narrative is they just assume that gold is always going up. And they're often told that story by people who have gold to sell. It's the same thing okay. that happens in real estate. Okay, I'm already getting getting some emails from listeners who who hold have gold and think it's a good idea to purchase it. Don't like the tone of our conversation here. There's a wait a second here. Gold, gold is a good thing to have as as some sort of a safeguard. 
like for most people who have want to put some money, a little bit of money into gold, what are the, why would they want to do that? Like, is it fear of um, like a currency crash or something or That's why would people want to, yeah. It's a hedge against a currency crash. Um, and in that regard, people are not entirely wrong, but they are failing to assess the likelihood of the Canadian dollar crashing out to zero. Right. Like if I if I lived in Venezuela at the height of the hyperinflation, gold is fantastic because the Bolivar was worth nothing. Or yeah. Zimbabwe at the height of hyperinflation, gold was awesome. But that's not the situation here. Right. Like we're not look, living at the edge of, you know, economic collapse in Canada, uh, despite what, you know, a lot of people in comment sections like to say. Uh, but the fact is, things are going pretty well. So I don't know that gold is necessarily a better investment than, say, a five percent T-bill guaranteed by the government of Canada right now. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking it, it's, uh, it's not that it's useless. It's just that it doesn't have a very compelling story to it. Yeah, um, I would I was just, Venezuela was going through my mind, actually, just as we were talking, and you said Venezuela, because I was thinking, if I lived in a country with some very unstable currency, like if I was living in Venezuela, or, mm -hmm. I don't know, Iran, or somewhere like that, maybe yeah. I'd want to put all my money in gold. That's right. It's also yeah. useful if you, uh, if, if, for example, just to, you know, I, I realize this... Um, is you know a real world type example so it's, it might be a little touchy but if i have to say you know let's say you lived in syria over the last 10 years and you had to flee with the handful of things you could carry yeah um gold or jewelry or gemstones is a reasonable thing to carry with you right um but once again you, you can't really buy food with it it's hard to pay a smuggler with it. Um, so you, you still need to have some infrastructure for cashing out of it, but it is small, portable, uh, and it's it's useful in that sense that if you know you do have a civilization or an econ collapse, that you could, in theory, carry it. But I hear yeah. people who are sort of disaster preppers talking about how they're going to get canned food and gold. Like, man, if civilization collapses, you should worry about, like, water and ammo. <laughs> gold isn't going to matter. Okay. Well, a lot of people seem to think, seem to think that gold is not a bad idea. Maybe stock mm -hmm. away a little bit of your loot yeah. in some gold just just in case. For, for sure. But I mean, it's a okay. Correlated asset. Yeah. But okay. Let's say. All right, Will. So let's say you had twenty seven hundred bucks burning a hole in your pocket here, and you're thinking, okay, yeah. where am I going to put this money? You would not be going down to Costco to buy a gold bar, I presume. Where, where would you put the money instead? Honestly, like one thing I got to be careful uh, because I'm a prof, people will legally qualify me as an expert. So I am not giving financial advice. Okay. Just for the record, okay. not giving yeah. advice. However, right. if I had 2,700 bucks, you know what I did with my paycheck last time? I, I put it into a government treasury bill. It pays me at 5% annualized rate of interest right now. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Right. Like I don't have to worry about the stock market rising or falling to make sure I get my 5% dividend yield. This is guaranteed by the people who produce my currency, the people that I owe that currency back to in the form of taxes. The yeah, language sure. you could a higher interest rate. This is back to normal throughout Canadian history. We've never had an interest rate that was lower than inflation until 2008. And then we had it for 13 out of 14 years and people got used to that and thought it was normal. It's never been normal. We are finally getting back to normal today where interest rates are higher than inflation. Yeah, I mean, I guess people, you could oh, you could get a pretty good return on GIC right now, I think. With That's right. You, you, can get, you could lock in like a 5% GIC over a couple of years from just about any bank. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself the question, over the next three years, 
am I going to get a 15% return out of anything else? All right, and that's what, no. the real, that's the finance question that comes down to it, right? If you think gold will move more than 15% in three years, then I suppose that makes a better investment. Right. But it really requires us to assume and to take risk. This is a 15% return over three years. You just lock it in. Well, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. It's really interesting. I appreciate it. I'm happy to help out anytime, Mike. Give me a call. All right, let's talk about this difficult economy right now, especially for young people trying to break into this unaffordable housing market. Now, we talk a lot about this on the show. For people making an average income in this city, even an above average income, is it even possible to save up the down payment now for a first home? Now, forget about a detached house that's off the table for most people. Let's talk about a, a townhouse. Or, okay, let's talk about a condo. Taking a look at, now these numbers are a couple months old here. Benchmark condo sale price in British Columbia $661,300. You're looking for a condo for that kind of money. Can you afford to scrape up the down payment for that type of investment? Now, we talk a lot about this now. And I've heard from some listeners who think that younger people should stop their whining, all right? Yes, it is tough, but you've got to sacrifice in order to afford that down payment, just like older people did when they were young. You sacrifice, stop wasting money, and then maybe you can come up with that down payment for a home. Got Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger standing by to discuss. Now have a listen to Mr. Wonderful here, okay? To Kevin O'Leary. Do you watch him on Shark Tank here? The Canadian businessman. He's been a guest here on the show a few times. I follow him on social media. I find him entertaining on there. Now watching some of his recent videos, his advice for young people. He says young people waste a lot of money. Here's what he has to say. Let's listen. Stop buying coffee for $5.50. You know, you go to work, you spend 15 bucks on a sandwich. What are you, an idiot? It costs you 99 cents to make a sandwich at home and bring it with you. You start to add that up every day, it's a ton of money. Most people, particularly working in metropolitan cities that are just starting out on their job, making their first 60,000, piss away about 15,000 a year on stupid stuff. And that's what they should stop doing. Okay. So a young person, let's say making 60 grand a year, stop buying $5 lattes, stop buying takeout sandwiches, make your lunch at, at home, brown bag it, stop buying those expensive lattes. Would that be enough to allow you to scrape up the down payment for a new home? Let's discuss with my guest, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councilor, and it's always great to have him on. Dylan, thanks for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me. I always appreciate you coming on because I love to get a young person's perspective here. And you're one of the sort of dynamic young leaders in the city. What do you think when you listen to Mr. Wonderful there, Kevin O'Leary? Look, stop buying the lattes, okay? Make your lunch at home. Stop wasting your money. What do you think of that message? Look, I, uh, I also like Mr. Wonderful. I think he's very entertaining. I enjoy listening to him. And I'm all for scrimping and saving. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think it's a little bit unrealistic to say, 
that, you know, folks just stopped buying their lattes and started making their sandwiches at home, it would make such an insurmountable difference, the difference between being able to have a down payment and not. So let's go through that, Mike. So his first point on the lattes, okay, $5 a day for a latte. First of all, a lot of people don't do that, but let's say you did. Let's say we, we, I, I buy a $5 latte five days a week when I go to work uh, and I forego that. That's 100 bucks a month. That's $1,200 a year. So if I forego lattes for about 100 years, I might have a good down payment there. <laughs> let's let that in the sandwiches. 15 bucks for a sandwich. Now, you know, I'm a reasonably frugal person. I, I, I like to uh, bring my lunch to work four days a week, but maybe on Fridays, I like to eat out and get a $15 sandwich. Okay, if I forego eating out, on Fridays, there's another 720 bucks a year. You know what? Let's be generous. Let's call that another 1200. We just cut the timeline for a down payment from 100 years down to 50. <laughs> so, I just yeah. want a little bit of realism when we realize the gap that we're in and the crunch that those under 40 are in in this very serious affordability crisis. Okay, let's listen to a little bit more of his advice here. Get your thoughts on this. So, here is businessman Kevin O'Leary. He's been a uh, He's been one of our favorite guests on the show here in the past. Here he is advising young people, stop wasting money on clothes that you'd hardly wear. Have a listen. So if you're 20, listen to what Mr. Wonderful is saying here. You need three baseball caps. You need six T-shirts. You need three pairs of jeans, white, traditional blue, and black. And when they wear out, buy another one. Don't buy all that crap you don't need. I think about all the crap I bought that I never used. Okay, so th- six T-shirts and three pair of jeans. So, you know, obviously you would save some money with not spending a ton of money on clothes that you don't wear. Uh, again, Kevin, th- or Dylan, does this make any sense to you? Go ahead. Yeah, and again, there's an element of truth there. <laughs> obviously, we need to be reasonably responsible with our finances. That's just a basic rule for human beings. But yeah. talking about the wealth gap, like I just want to give a little bit of a sense of, of what we're talking about here. The wealth gap between those over the age of 60 and under the age of 40 has doubled since the 1970s. It's doubled. Yeah. So if you are a baby boomer uh, under the age of 40 in 1989, uh, your generation controlled 21% of the wealth in North America. Today, millennials, the same age that boomers would have been in 1989, own 5%. Uh, A study came out by the National Bank of Canada earlier this year that said that if you're making a very high salary, $322,000 a year, I don't know anyone my age, I'm 28, Mike, making $300,000 a year, it would take the average Vancouver resident nearly 38 years to save up for the required down payment with a savings rate of 10%. So this is a lot more than scrimping and saving on coffee, sandwiches, and T-shirts. Okay, on this precise point here, Dylan, let's listen to a guy you know, Paul Kershaw, researcher at UBC, you've debated him on the show on some of these points in the past. And here he is. I thought this was a kind of a clear summary of a point that you just made here. How long does it take making the money that people make right now, like a realistic income, how long does it take to save up for a down payment for a home in the, in Metro Vancouver compared to what it used to take, okay? So we're talking about... Let's go back to the 1970s. You mentioned 1970s. How long did it take people to save up for a down payment back then compared to right now? Let's listen to him and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Paul Kershaw. In the mid-1970s, when baby boomers were young adults coming of age, it took five years of full-time work for a typical young person uh, to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. If you flash forward to today, it's 17 years across the country 
22 in Ontario and B.C., 27 in Metro Vancouver. Okay, is 27 years to save up a down payment in Metro Vancouver. You had a similar number that you cited there, Dylan. So when you hear this, so here's the reality. Like when you hear existing homeowners say, look, young people, come on, you just got to suck it up a little bit here and make some sacrifices in order to save up. Is it possible to save up this amount of money for a down payment right now? Like what's got to change to make it affordable? Yeah, and Paul's bang on with that point. I think where Paul and I uh, will deviate in our opinion, and we've discussed this on your show in the past, is you know Mr. Kershaw will talk about you know that wealth gap is something that needs to be taxed, and we need to tax and punish uh, successful baby boomers who have made money over time. I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is that we need to even the playing field. We were on a per capita basis building so much more housing supply in the 1960s and 70s than we are today. CMHC has estimated that we need a million new units of housing by 2030 in British Columbia alone, a million new units to get back to decent levels of affordability. And what I mean when I say that is price of housing rising with income levels. And that's the disparity that we're seeing. The price of housing compared to rising incomes has been vastly disproportionate over the last 20 years. So we need a million new units. We're on track right now by 2030 to build 400,000 new units of housing. So we're not even at halfway. That's the big challenge. So what's happening now is you've got a generation that's been priced out of the market, that's becoming a perpetual renting class that will never purchase a house in their lives. Unfortunately, we've got a rental vacancy rate of less than 1% in the region because there's no dedicated rental supply coming in either. So uh, the answer really is that we need to make some big level policy changes to build a whole heck of a lot more housing in this region. Okay, so you see it as more of a supply side of the argument then that we, if we can supply more, the price will go down, correct? Yeah, that is the case with every other commodity on the market. Sometimes we struggle with it a little bit on on the housing side, but that's fundamentally what it is. We're not building housing. It's an excruciating process to get new uh, units of housing built uh, in this region and in this country. I don't know Uh, You know, if you've ever had a chance to go to a public hearing and just to see the onerous process to get one single project approved, it can take years, sometimes half a decade or longer to get one single building of housing built. So we really need to reframe and stop this kind of, you know, I I hate to borrow this phrase from 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 others, but this kind of gatekeeper mentality where we say, okay, you know, we we were first here into this city or this region. We're going to close the doors behind us and not let anyone else come in. First of all, that's not very neighborly. Second of all, it also causes problems in the local economy to say, oh, well, too bad. You know, you you know, I had to scrimp and save and move out to further out. You know, people, young people today, they can move out to Vancouver Island or Vanderhoof. That's a common thing. Okay, well, we've got a local economy that's based on having retail workers and workers, uh, firefighters and nurses making uh, median incomes of sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. If we don't have places for them to stay in Metro Vancouver, we're yeah. going to get to a much bigger crisis than just a housing crisis. Lots of calls on this topic. We always do. Peter and Langley. Hey, Peter, go ahead. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, so I'm old enough to remember Expo 86 and the effects of it. And I've always advocated for a 33% uh, foreign buyer's tax. So if you're a foreign, foreign person, you don't work here, you don't live here, but you're just parking your money 33% right off the top. That would free up more available housing because it would be, unless you really want to park your money here, you're not going to pay the 33% because where I work, I see it firsthand where the effects of young people uh, not being able to live here anymore. 
Most of yeah. them either uh, pack up and move, they go to Calgary. So index this 20 years, people, and stop and think of where the workforce is going to come from. Because if, uh, the idea of scrimping and saving is, 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 is pointless. Because, I mean, the percentage that you're talking about is, what, 10 15%? Yeah. It doesn't make no difference at all. But the workforce is what really scares me because I see it firsthand now. Sure. Peter, people need a place to live. Peter, thank you for the call. Well, we have a, a foreign buyer's ban right now. Never mind a, a tax, correct, Dylan? That's right. We started with the tax in 2017. Then the tax was increased under this uh, provincial government and the federal yeah. government has now instituted a ban on foreign buyers. So we, we knew that it was an element, a very, very small element of the market. The ban is in place and the crisis continues to get worse. Yeah. Clint in Surrey. Hi, Clint. Go ahead. Listen, you're you're a thousand percent right. And Kevin O'Leary is a thousand percent right. These people... I, I take the bus. I've got the money. I can drive my car around, you know, you know, with the gasoline price and all that. I don't. I take the bus. I'm 70 years old. I take the bus. These people, I, I see them leave a half a latte or these, these iced coffees or whatever they are. They must be 5 to $8, you know, almost, almost uh, three, three quarters full in the cup in that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, these people can't save any money. They, they sure can. They can cut out all this stuff. I never did that when I was, uh, I had I had 19% I paid for my mortgage in the yeah. 70s. Yeah. And I scraped up enough money to get a house because I cut back on everything. I drove old cars and all that. These people went out and bought boats, motor homes, expensive cars and all that. I, I don't feel a thing for these people. You okay. know that. I know that. Okay, Clint, thank you for that call. And we heard that a lot, Dylan, especially people look back at when inflation was running wild and interest rates went through the stratosphere back in the 70s. Your thoughts? Yeah, and, and <coughs> interest rates were, were through the stratosphere on, you know, fifty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 homes. So I, I think the proportion right. of payment was, was still different. Now, having said that, look, there might be an element of society that the caller is speaking to, and, and I don't know many of those people personally. I, I think a more realistic reality is I got people who I know in my life making you know good average incomes for their age, two two incomes in the household, working really hard, and just seeing the gap get get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you've gotten to the point where you say, "Look, I'm never going to be a homeowner," then have your latte, frankly. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, have, you know, look forward to, to having some small enjoyments in life if, if okay. housing uh, is, is out of the table. Squeeze in one more call. Aurora in Vancouver. Aurora, you have 30 seconds here. Hi, Mike. I agree with the last caller of 70 years old. I am on that bracket on 1970s. I was paying 22% interest. But I'll tell you, I'm, I've been here since 1965. I'm an immigrant. But I did five jobs to mm. be able to save money. I never went to the restaurant. I never bought a coffee. I didn't go to the hockey games. I didn't go to any place saving the money for a roof over my head. And now that I have it, now you're telling me you're going to, not you, I mean, this, this situation, comes over and, and tax those people that yeah. have a house. No, I paid my, my due, and I used to work for 25 cents an hour, Mike. Thank, thank you, Aurora. I would love to keep listening to you, but uh, up against the clock. I certainly appreciate your call. More calls coming in. Dylan, we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. In Israel now, Israel has declared a state of war, fears of an escalating war in the region.
especially if Iran-backed Hezbollah launches fresh attacks from Lebanon. These events in Israel have shocked the world. We've got Charles Burton standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen first to this report. This is from ABC News. Israel has formally declared war after that unprecedented multi-pronged terror attack from Hamas, shocking the nation, catching its intelligence service by surprise. The death toll is mounting and at least 100 taken hostage. Hamas lobbed thousands of rockets from Gaza toward Israel. Armed militants breaching border crossings, gunning down soldiers and civilians. Neighborhoods in flames, homes and cars destroyed, more than 700 killed in Israel. More than 260 mostly young people killed at a music festival. A couple at that festival among the hostages, the woman taken away on a motorcycle, her boyfriend marched away by two men. This is one of the most shocking and heartbreaking elements of this, uh, the hostages taken back to Gaza. Let's discuss now with my guest, Charles Burton from the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I'm always grateful for his time. Charles, thank you for coming on today. It's good to speak with you, Mike. Okay, Charles, this is absolutely heartbreaking and gut-wrenching to watch what's going on here with so many lives being lost here. Your thoughts on, on how this happened. What happened to Israel's vaunted intelligence system here? How come they did not see this coming? I have absolutely no idea how the intelligence could have failed. I mean, one has yeah. the impression that Israel knew everything that was going on there, that they had people within uh, critical Palestinian organizations that were informing them. And, you know, obviously, an invasion of this scale was planned out well in advance and involved a lot of people. So I think that Israel really has to look at uh, what happened. And this will probably result in the end of the career of Benjamin Netanyahu, you, you know, simply because the government very much failed on this. And as you say, the result is tragedy. Uh, you know, there are many people here in Canada who have family in Israel who are at risk because they, they're now, the reserves are being called up and uh, who have um, family members who have been um, uh, killed or, or injured in this terrible terrorist incident. So I think our hearts yeah. all go out to them and the people of Israel at this time. But in terms of the larger question that you have, you know, it looks as if this is about the coming reconciliation between Israel and the Saudis as brokered by the United States. Yeah. Um, Hamas is an organization backed by Iran. Uh, Iran, you know, China, Russia, they don't want to see uh, a, a U.S. Um, friendly Middle East. You know, this has implications for the war in Ukraine. It has implications for the future of, of Taiwan. And I think it's indicative of the larger issue in the world of us dividing into, you know, democratic blocks oriented towards U.S. leadership and the increasing rising power of China that's pulling Russia and Iran up with it. So, you know, this matter is, is not only a tragedy for Israel and for the innocent civilians in Gaza, but is also a harbinger of, of serious geostrategic tensions that impact on Canada as well as the rest of the world. Yeah, I think you put your fingers on some of the most important elements here, especially the involvement of Iran here and the Wall Street Journal reporting here in the last 24 hours that this attack had been planned and approved by 
Iran, and Iran, of course, has denied that. But if you take a look at this drive toward normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia that you mentioned, Charles, like that has to be concerning to Iran, right? They don't want to see an Israel-Saudi peace. You had the Saudi Prince Mohammed MBS saying he wanted the Middle East to become like a new Europe. And this is certainly not in the interests of Iran, right? So they would have a motivation to launch an, an attack like this to scuttle that deal? I think certainly that is the most likely explanation for why it happened now. You know, yeah. this ideological difference between Saudi Arabia with regard to how you profess Iran, the Saudis being Sunni and the and the Iranians um, having a different, uh, you know, slightly different uh, uh, doctrinal difference is, is significant. And then you look at the, the way that the Chinese media is depicting it, which is to try and suggest that, it, you know, it started with Israel and that this is not a terrorist attack on Israel by, by uh, Hamas, but in fact is just another round in the, what's referred to the large scale confrontation between Pakistan and Israel. You know, the way mm. it's being packaged I think is designed to prepare the world for other conflicts where, you know, instead of there being a moral component of an aggressor versus a defender, these all become sort of amorphous, inevitable conflicts backed ultimately by the United States. And China has been suggesting that, you know, just like they, the claim that the Ukrainian conflict is due to um, you know, U.S. Um, conspiracy with uh, rightist forces in Ukraine, that the independence movement in Taiwan is backed by the U.S. They're also suggesting that it's U.S. Back, uh, backing of Israel that has somehow or other justified what Hamas is doing. Well, I mean, this is pretty serious evil stuff in the world, and I don't think that Canada should stand idly by and just let it happen like this. We have to take a stand. Okay, what sort of stand do you think Canada, I mean, Israel is Canada's ally, what more does Canada need to do here? Well, I think in general, because this is part of, you know, a global movement, we have to up our game in terms of contributing to global defense. You know, the signal mm -hmm. sent out by the government cutting the defense budget by a billion dollars, while, you know, that may not be a large amount in the larger scheme of things, we're really very far behind our allies in terms of our ability to contribute to global defense, whether it's in the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East, or Europe. And, you know, the fact that, that we talk a good game but aren't prepared to, to contribute in a way commensurate with other countries of similar size and economic heft mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, disturbing. And I think, I think the government just doesn't get it, that we can no longer just rely on the U.S. and coast along that we have to be out there and active. I mean, it's wonderful that Canada has come out with a strong statement of support for Israel. You know, we've projected yeah. the Israeli flag on the peace tower, the Canadian flags at half mast, but yes. you know, that what it needs to be backed by when you have soft power is hard power. And, and our government doesn't seem to be getting that message yet. Speaking of Charles Burton, McDonald Laurier Institute, talking about the war in Israel, Charles, what are your fears and, and thoughts going forward here. Uh, we're already seeing a devastating retaliation from Israel with airstrikes on Gaza. 
Could this lead to a ground a ground war, like a ground invasion uh, by Israeli troops into Gaza? Is that where this is heading? I think that looks like uh, that's in preparation. You know, we yeah. gather that Israel is rallying troops uh, along Gaza. The issue really is whether Iran will mobilize Hezbollah in in uh, Lebanon and we'll have a yes. two front war on uh, on the West Bank as well as the Gaza Strip and the extent to which the United States will become actively participating in this conflict. You know, it it doesn't look at this time as if the matter is going to be resolved by everybody getting cooler heads and, and backing down. I think the outrage in Israel against what happened, you know, the, the images of young people at a music festival being slaughtered by um, Hamas terrorists is just something that, that you know, people cannot be expected to to adopt a a sanguine and and calm response. And so, once the emotions are up, then the danger uh, enhances. And certainly, the Netanyahu government, which, as you point out rightly, was clearly caught off guard by this thing, yes, will want to compensate by by engaging in measures that the Israeli people can see have an element of revenge to them. And you know that is never going to be good in terms of trying to maintain peace in the Middle East again. Yeah, and, and just touching back on that point about the intelligence failure here, I mean, Israel had been lauded for decades as the the, 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 the dominant military power in the region, and Mossad, their spy agency, they were widely regarded as knowing everything that was going on in Gaza, not only through high-tech surveillance, but also human intelligence, having infor- paid informants, in Gaza, obviously did not work. I mean, when you take a look at the scale of this attack, we're talking about a thousand fighters going pouring over the border into Israel. I mean, you'd think that they they would have known something, but I, I wonder if Hamas, realizing that Israel has this intelligence infrastructure, that they just went old school and just, just did person-to-person communications to avoid detection, which it, it appears that they did. I think that, you know, I mean, the Gaza Strip's not that big uh, compared to Israel, a nation of 9 million people. And certainly Israel has been distracted by public protests against the government's um, uh, removal of elements of independence of the judiciary. You know, people in Israel want to maintain that democratic system. And a lot of reservists were refusing to come as protest against the government's actions. But, um, you know, I think that we'll find out soon what what went wrong there. But I'm with you. I always thought that the Mossad was a powerful intelligence agency that knew an awful lot. And I think um, the fact that they've shown some weakness here does not bode well for the future if Israel is seen as not as powerful and as strong as we thought. But that being said, I mean, they have clear military advantage over their enemies in in the immediate region. And so they can develop, they can produce a a devastating hit against Hamas in Gaza Strip and defend the West Bank if if it comes to that. But, you know, as you said at the beginning of your report, this comes at the cost of innocent human lives. And, yep. you know, no one can look at that and, and not be concerned about the bloodshed, the death and the family tragedies, not to speak of destruction of infrastructure and so on that, that will accrue from this. All right, we're following it closely. Charles, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. It's good to speak with you.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.